Good to see everybody today. If you're just joining us, we're in the book of Acts. We're only about halfway through. It's taken us four weeks to cover 15 chapters, so we certainly haven't been going line by line. But the way we're covering the book of Acts, which it really just tells us, well, what happened after Jesus went back to heaven? Describes all of that. But we're just taking you through main events and some pivotal moments, and not just for history's sake, like, oh, that's helpful information. We're doing that because the mission is still going on. It's about the spread of the gospel through the Roman Empire, and then it it kept going because it eventually came all the way to us. You guys heard the gospel? (laughs) Okay, the mission is still going. And then it's not supposed to stop with us. It's supposed to keep going, and so we can learn from this. So here's some key things along the way that we've looked at. One was, here's the power behind the whole mission. The book is about the spread of the gospel through the Roman Empire after Jesus goes back to heaven, and what's powering it? The Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes from heaven or arrives from heaven in a, in a way never seen before. Nobody goes and tells anybody about Jesus unless the Spirit of God empowers them to go do it. It just doesn't happen. Same thing is true today. If you're a believer, you're empowered by the Spirit of God to go and do those things. Early on in Acts, we saw the description of what, of what it does to communities of people who claim to believe in Jesus. It actually changes them. Some of the best descriptions of believers in all of the Bible come from early Acts. They sold their property. They held everything in common. They shared as somebody had a need. That guy would sell a field and give it to this, whatever the case was. They had deep community. And somehow Jesus brought all that about. When Jesus is the loudest voice in your life, he rearranges your life and then it looks different. The question would be, has that happened to us? Do we have that sort of thing? Next was, it's not okay to keep it to yourself. If the good news comes to you, great, congratulations. And that is a good thing. God wants that. But it can't stop with you. That was chapter 8 and the death of Stephen, and all of a sudden the gospel moves out beyond Jerusalem. So here's the thing. You have the mission and your comfort. Which one's more important to God? Mission. Are you okay with that? Because God is, so that would be important that you're okay with that. Then, as it goes out, God shows, he, God shows us that he shows no partiality. He'll save anyone. Craziest guy in here. God's not worried about it. You know what that does? When God is not partial to who, he'll save people who know nothing about church and save people who know everything about church. And when you put those two groups together, will they get along? No, because the church guy is always going to look at the unchurched guy and go, you're not doing it right. So then God lets us see our very first church fight, which I think is good. Do you know why he let us see it? Because we still have church fights. Because there's still, there's huge diversity. There are people in this room today that just like, I don't know why I'm here. Hope this is over quick. They don't know anything about this. Don't even care. And then some of you like grew up here, like you've never left the building. So you're not going to get along. We got to, here's how, here's how he shows, here's how it works. In 15, those two groups of people stopped looking at one another and what they were, what they were and weren't doing. And they started looking at Christ and what he had done. And everybody was able to take a step closer. And that's the way it will always work. So God corrects it. And then 16 through 22, that's what we're ready for next. It just explodes. The, the good news about you can have peace with God through Christ because he lived a perfect life for you and he paid for all of your sin, took that all away so God can accept you completely. He's the only way. That message goes everywhere. Now, here's what I want to show you today. If you read and reread these chapters, and I did, it's not random. It's not just here, there, and everywhere. It's very directed. God is in control of all of it. The who, the when, the where, the why, the woe, the go, all of it. And I want you to see it. And I want us to be able to trust it because he still does that for his church. So here's where we're going to start. We're going to take a lap around the world at the time. And I made your bulletin a map just because, you know what? I'm up here doing most of the talking, and I thought we'd do a map today. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to go all the way around this, and we're going to start in Antioch, because that's where chapter 16 starts. Here's the deal with Antioch right there. 
The whole thing takes place. Jesus dies for sin, conquers the grave, and ascends in Jerusalem. That's where the whole thing starts. But it spills out, and now we're 300 miles north in a place called Antioch. And this is the new home base for the sending out of the good news. Antioch is like a sending church. Now, what I I want you to do is I want you to look at, and you can write them in if you want, but this is the leadership team. This would be the teaching team or the preachers and the teachers at that church at the moment. They've been together for a while. Now, there's something about them. We'll talk about each one of them that they're very, very different. The guy at the top and the guy at the bottom, so Barnabas and Paul, they're both Jews, but, they're, but they don't really like each other, naturally. Apart from Jesus, they don't. They're, there's, they're, Barnabas is a liberal Jew, and Paul's a conservative, like core values kind of guy. And even though they're both Jews, Barnabas is a Hellenistic Jew. You know what Paul would say about him? He's been polluted by the world. He's just starting to act like the Greeks and talk like the Greeks and dress like the Greeks. And he's going away from conservative values. I mean, do liberals and conservatives get along today? Come on. They didn't then either. But this is about the Jewish nation. So they didn't really like each other naturally, necessarily. Barnabas's um, name was, here's another way they're different. His, his original name was Joseph. I don't know if you knew that. The first time he shows up in the book of Acts, he sells a field and then distributes the proceeds so other people can, that are in need can, can get what they want. So he's, he's a super nice guy. Paul is not. All right, so he's like a non-conflict loving pastor kind of guy. God so changed him. They actually, the, the apostles changed his name from Joseph to Barnabas because it means son of encouragement. He was like that guy who was always like, it's okay, you can do it. We're going to be, you know anybody like that? That's him. That's not Paul. So he's a liberal kind of cheerleader. And then Paul's like, seriously, it's just the traditions and you have to do this. And he's intense. And 10 chapters before this, Saul, he got his name changed too, was kicking in doors at the church in Jerusalem trying to put a stop to the whole thing because he hated Christ and the gospel until, chapter 9, he meets the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus and Jesus says, stop it. I really did go to the cross for you and I really did conquer the grave and I really am resurrected son of God. Believe it. I'm going to change your name to Paul. I have something for you to do. And he did. But it doesn't necessarily mean that he likes Barnabas yet. The two guys, Simeon and Lucius, what we know from church history is that they're probably, they have black skin. Uh, Simeon the Niger, which Latin for black. Lucius is from Africa. So you have two Jews, two black guys, and then Manian. So the the ethnicity is way different, and the core beliefs are way different. And then you have Manian, who is a... Palestinian Greek Herodian. One of his best friends growing up was Herod Antipas. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is bad company. Anybody grow up with bad company? Is anyone here bad company that other people grew up with? There we go. That, that's the church that I have come to know and love. Here's his best friend. All right, Manny's best friend, Herod Antipas. His dad is Herod the Great. Anybody know what Herod the Great did? Tried to kill Jesus as a baby. Super tough guy, right? Luke 2, where's the baby Jesus? I want to come and worship him. Not really. I'd like to kill him. Sent soldiers to Bethlehem to kill two-year-olds. That's the dad, okay? Antipas is not much better. Married his stepbrother's ex-wife. Threw a party that... It's a well-known party. At that party, John the Baptist lost his head and it was served up on a platter. There's a dance at that party. His wife's daughter is going to dance. It's not a recital. Like, she's been working on it. You guys should really see it. She's worked really hard. It's not that, all right? It's about seduction and it borders on incest. Antipas is drunk and he likes it. She gets done dancing and he says, What do you want in all the kingdom? She looks at her mom and her mom says, how about the head of John the Baptist on a platter? And he's like, done. That's his best friend. Manny may have been at the party. He's a a Herodian. He's terrible. And now he's on the leadership team of the sending church. Will God use anyone? Never think you're so bad that God will never use you. Those guys would snicker at your badness. 
Does God care? Our apparent goodness or badness never figures into whether God's going to save you or not. He doesn't, he doesn't see that because everybody he saves comes with the same title, rebel sinner. You're not special. You keep hearing that from me. I know, and I will stop saying it maybe one of these days. But listen, God is. And these guys grew up trained to believe that they were better than the other person. Paul absolutely, naturally believed that he, has, he, was, he had intrinsically more value than Lucius. He just believed that. There was a pecking order and you are less than me. And somehow, in that group, they're, they're unified. How in the world does that happen? When you have prejudice growing up and you're taught a certain thing that you are more than this person growing up, how does, how does that get drowned out and you guys can come together? I think the only way is this. Listen, Paul thinks he's awesome. But he can look at a guy uh, uh, like Manian, uh, a Herodian, and hate him and probably have reason to. But there's something about Manian he realizes that he's broke and he needs something that Jesus has, and he went to Jesus, and Paul realizes, hey, wait a second, I went to Jesus too. That must mean we're the same. Nobody has anything to claim before Christ. Nobody. Level ground. And so it brings you together. That's the leadership team, all right? This happens in chapter 13. Also, I'll jump back a little bit and then we'll go forward. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them to do. So after they had fasted and prayed and placed their hands on them, they sent them off. So God says to that group right there, I want two out of the five to leave. Now here's what's difficult if you're a church. When you get used to a couple of the same guys up front, and then all of a sudden those guys are gone, how does that make you feel? So there's like a certain rhythm. Listen, Paul would, you know, preach three in a row and then sit down and then Barnabas would get up and then sometimes Simeon would fill in, right? Okay, there's a rhythm and you get used to it and the church gets comfortable with that. Okay, then all of a sudden God says, I'm going to take these two out. And you're like, how does the church feel about that? Mm. I wonder if somewhere in the church they're like, mm, take Manny. <laughs> I wish you'd take Manny. Because Barnabas was nice. They didn't want him to leave. He ran the meal ministry. He came to see him when they were sick. He was a pastor. He cared. And Paul did most of the preaching. And so if Paul's gone, that means Manny's going to preach more and like more Herod stories. We know you were at the party. We... Right? Is it hard for a church to be open-handed with their leaders? It is, because you get comfortable. You like certain things the way they are. I want to say, but what's more important? What our God says, if I have 99 sheep up on a hill and there's one out in the weeds, where am I going? I'm going out here to the one. And oh, we just like him to be concerned with the 99, but he's like, I need these two to go out there. And Antioch becomes a model church. They're open-handed with these guys and they go. Barnabas and Paul take off. They go to Cyprus and Galatia, and they get their names changed again. So this, this would be the second name change that they've had. Do you know what their names were changed to? They spoke with such power, and they worked with such power that the people they were preaching the gospel to started to call them Zeus and Hermes. I told you that polytheism was all over the place in the world at the time. They saw what those guys were able to do and they said, surely the gods have become flesh. Barnabas is Zeus and Paul is Hermes. And in Galatia, they tried to sacrifice bulls to them. Like, stop with the bulls. We're not Zeus and Hermes. As a matter of fact, those guys don't exist. The one true God, et cetera, et cetera. Exciting times. They go back to Antioch and report all the good news. And then late in chapter 15, they decide to take another trip. And then it goes this way. It says, 
let us go back. This is 1536. Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord to see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them on the first trip. We're not taking him again. He left us high and dry in Cyprus. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. I love that the Bible shows us fighting. I mean, just disagreements. And it's a sharp disagreement. So much so that Barnabas and Paul are not getting, they're not going in the same place. But God can use it because the fact that they're going to go in two separate places now, what has God just effectively done for the mission? He's multiplied it. Now he has two teams on the road. Because Barnabas is still going to go and Paul's going to go. They're just going to go in different directions. So if you see something in your life that seems like an absolute disaster, what good could come out of this? Hang on a second, because good things can come out of it. God's can, he can use this fight. It's okay. I'll split it up, and I'll get more messengers out on the road for the spread of the gospel. So Paul takes Mark, and he goes back to Cyprus. But Paul is going to, did I say Barnabas or Paul? It doesn't matter. Barnabas went to Cyprus. Paul's going north. But here's the thing. Here's what he does. He doesn't have anybody to go with, so he asked the church, hey, who, sh who should come? Who do you guys recommend? If I was taken off out of Antioch and I would ask you, like, hey, listen, I'm going to go do this thing. I need somebody to come with me. Who's the first person in your mind? You're like, oh, you should take that guy. Got somebody in mind? All right, well, they said Silas. Take Silas with you. So he goes north and left, which is perfect because it puts him on a crash course with a guy named Timothy. And Timothy is going to be huge for the mission. Tim, here's why he's going to be huge for the mission. Timothy is way different than Paul. Paul is a hard charger. He's a planter. He's a starter. He's going to go and do this. And he's going to move on. He's going to go and do this. And he's going to move on. He's a He's going to plant the garden and then move on. And then Tim, but Timothy's not like that. He's not a hard charger. He's a little timid. He doesn't like conflict. He's nice. He wants to slow down. He wants to answer questions. If Paul's about planting the garden and then let's go plant another one, he's like, let's just stay here and pull the weeds in the one we have. That's Timothy. Now that's going to be incredibly important for the mission because Paul's going to want to keep going and keep going and sometimes they're going to have questions and Paul doesn't have time for their questions. We've got things to do. And so Timothy's going to be the one that gets to stay behind and answer their questions and it's going to be best for the mission. Who knows that the mission needs both, a hard charger and a really loving pastor? Who knows that? God knows it. And so you know what? The fight here that sent him in different directions, that's not a problem because I got to pick up Timothy on the way and Timothy's going to be really, really important for the mission. God is always in control of what's going on and where. So here's what happens. This is where they pick up Timothy. This is 16.1. Paul came to Derb and then Lystra where a disciple named Timothy lived whose mother was Jewish and a believer but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they knew his father was a Greek. It's a little bit confusing. I told you about this last week. Do you remember we had the big fight? And the fight was about you can't add things to Jesus. It's Jesus that saves. It's not Jesus plus circumcision. And that was that one group, like, you got to do this, this, and this. So they had a meeting, and they decided all that other stuff went away. You didn't have to do it. Now, what's the first thing Paul does when he picks up Timothy? Great, you're coming along. Get circumcised. And he has the letter from the church meeting that he's getting ready to go tell everybody. And the letter says, you don't have to be circumcised. What's up? And I'm sure Timothy's like, could we read the letter? You know, what's the letter? Let's check the letter. <laughs> this is how it's been explained to me. That sometimes you can do things or not do things inside the church and you're perfectly under God allowed to do or not do them, but the fact that you do or don't could affect negatively in some way another believer, cause them to stumble. And so it's better, even though you don't have to, to lay down your rights for the good of someone else. They're going to go and they're going to minister to a whole bunch of Jews, and the circumcision thing's going to be in the way, and even though he doesn't have to, the best thing he can do for that believer or potential believer is just lay down his rights, which is absolutely in line with the leader of this whole movement who set aside everything in heaven to come down here for our good.
And so everything about a follower should do the same. And so we see here Timothy laying down his rights to do that, not because he has to, but because he's willing to for the good of the mission, for the, for the betterment, so that nobody else can stumble over this block. So they take off, and this is uh, 6 through 10. They have Timothy now. Paul and his companions traveled through Phrygia and Galatia. Then they want to turn right. They want to go to Asia. You'll see that in a little bit. But having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia, they, they came to the border of Mysia, and they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had indeed called us to preach the gospel to them. So here's the map. They're headed further to the west, and we have Asia, and Asia is going to be our no-go zone over there. We're going to put an X. They want to turn right. They want to go this way, but God said, I don't want you to go that way. Sends them a vision from a man from Macedonia, which is further to the west, and said, I want you to go this way, over towards Philippi. And it happens because God wanted it to happen. Who is in control of this entire mission? God is. He says, don't go right. I want you to go straight. Speed up. Take this guy. Slow down because this is the way I want it to go. It's not random. God is in control. So they cross over to Macedonia. And over here, maybe you're familiar with Philippians and Thessalonians. Those are some of the books in the Bible. Those churches got planted. That's Macedonia. They have tons of questions, and this is the first place where, where Paul lets go of Timothy and Silas, and they stay behind to answer questions. So they go through, and they believe, but there's a group, they're, they're the Bereans over there, and they have tons of questions, and they want to check every detail of the story. And Paul's like, I just don't have time. i got to keep going. So Timothy, you stay back and answer their questions. And so that's what happens. Timothy stays there. Paul goes on to Athens preaches a phenomenal sermon on Mars Hill to people who will not listen, shakes the dust off his sandals, and moves on to Corinth. You've heard of the Corinthians, possibly. Do you know what Paul needs at this point in the journey? A job. He's running out of money. This has been a long trip. And he wanted to turn right a long time ago, but God made him go straight, so things are running a little thin. And he needs some funds. And so guess what God does because God is in control in Corinth. He brings a couple to that city at the same time Paul is there. The couple is Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla just got kicked out of Rome. They're from Italy. And they got kicked out because they're Jewish Christians and they're worshiping the Son of God. The emperor in Rome, kicked them out because he believed he was the son of God, and there's not two of them. There's only one of them. And they said, well, you're not the son of God we choose to believe in, and so he said, you need to leave. So he kicked them out, and they end up in Corinth. They are tent makers. What is Paul by trade? A tent maker. And they're making money and doing business, and so it says, Having left Athens, Paul goes to Corinth and met a Jew named Aquila, and they fall in together, and all of a sudden, Paul has exactly the support he needs. God is going to bring you the people that he knows you need at the right time when you need it. Now, it's right here. The Corinthians are crazy. They're like way crazy. They have a long way to go. Tons of debauchery and madness, and they've got a lot of they got a lot of work to do. And so God slows the mission down here. And in 18.9, he says, hey, Paul, whoa, we're going to stay here a while. This is 18.9 through 11. One night in Corinth, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. No one is going to attack you or harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them. So God says, stop, I want you to stay here for a while because this is what's going to be best for the mission. Now, the thing that happens is he gets to spend a lot of quality time with Aquila and Priscilla, and no one in the church has better doctrine, better basic understanding of the truth than Paul. And he's going to pass that on to them over the next 18 months they get to spend together. So it's not just making tents and making money, it's also discipleship and training, and they're going to need it later. 
At the end of 18 months, Paul says, I want to go home. So they, they start heading off to the east, and they stop at a port city in Ephesus. And there they meet a guy named Apollos. Now here's the thing about him. He's from Alexandria. He's a Jew. He's a preacher. He's a believer. And he's a good preacher. He's got like lots of fervor and polish. But his doctrine, his truth, his message is not bad. It's just incomplete. So watch what God does with this, because he's already been doing it back in Corinth, and now he's going to bring it over to Ephesus. Paul wants to keep going home back to Antioch, but Apollos needs some help. So the word says, when Aquila and Priscilla, who went with Paul to Ephesus, heard Apollos speak, do you know what they did right after his message? Hey, Apollos, you need to come over to our house. They invited him into their home and they explained to him the word of God and the way of God in a more complete manner. They helped his doctrine. They made him a better preacher. And who better to do it because they just spent 18 months with a guy who had the best doctrine in the whole church. And God knew that they needed to glean that because they're going to have to pass it on to Apollos. Paul is then allowed to go all the way back home to Antioch, actually goes back down to Caesarea. And at about that same time, things blow up in Corinth, and Apollos is sent to Corinth because they needed help. When he got there, this is what the word said, those who had believed by grace were greatly encouraged by Apollos and his teaching. So he'd come a long way. The church in Corinth is good. Aquila and Priscilla stay in Ephesus because they need help there, and Paul is able to go back home and that's just one lap. That's 16 through 19, one lap around the world at the time. Who determined all of it? God did. Go, no, yes, whoa, you and you, and I'm going to tell you because God has always, here's our fill-in for the day, God has always determined the who, the where, the when, the how for his church. That's just lap one. The next chapters, from 19 to 22, they take another lap. The same thing happens, but it's the same thing. If you read it, you can just see from up above God directing all those things just as he wanted them to be. Do you see it there? From what I read, do you see God directing and controlling? Do you trust him? Me too. That's good. Whose church is this, Life Church? Oh, I thought it was mine. Oh, it's his. And, oh, that's right. Okay. If it's his, do you trust him to, to control the who, the when, the where, the why here? Trust him? Because he always has, and he's doing some things here. In 1999, I was a, I was just restless. I was working construction, building houses, making a drive from Austin to Decatur. And on that morning drive, I was asking God all the time, like, what do you want me to do? Do you have something for me to do? Here was my fear. My fear was that my resume was going to turn into my obituary. All the stuff I was doing, work, 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 they were just going to cut and paste it and put it in my obituary, and then Annie liked to fish. And I'm like, do you want me to do something more than that? And he said, nothing. Anybody can relate? <laughs> Same God. So I took the next thing in front of me. There was an opportunity to move my family and move up. And so I went down to uh, Springfield, Tennessee, where, that's, where my company had a division down there. And I ended up in a church that this guy led. This is Pastor Maury Davis. Committed murder in 1975 in Texas. If you commit murder in 1975 in Texas, most likely you will die. There we, they will kill you. And there wasn't a whole lot of discussion about it. Somehow, some way, he got out of it. Eight years after he served a you know, 20-year sentence uh, with no death penalty, God set him free, literally, and he traveled all over the place just talking about Jesus and ended up planting a church. It was a Pentecostal megachurch in Springfield, and we went there. At a communion service in a church that that guy led, which when I think about him, like, 
clearly the book of Acts hasn't ended. Doesn't that look like, doesn't that sound like, like chapter 39, you know, like, and then God saved a murderer and, the, you know, so clearly <laughs> it, it rolls on. In a communion service in that church, I finally got an answer to the question that I've been asking God for a long time. What do you want me to do? And the answer to that question was feed my sheep. That's what he told me. I heard it from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. I just knew. And I knew instantly and is the only time before then or since that I've heard from God in that way. Maybe a one-shot deal for me. But it doesn't matter with God. He's going to tell you one time what he wanted you. How many times does God have to tell you what he wants you to do? Maybe just one time. He said, feed my sheep. And I was ecstatic because I knew instantly that it was God. And no one else heard it. I was in a room of 2,500 people, and I was the only one to hear it. But I knew it was him. and what he, that was, That's great. But I also had no idea what it meant, which is a problem. <laughs> I do know this, though. I was ne- my life has never been the same since that. I um, eventually moved home and... I wanted to serve. I wanted to be, I knew God had something for me to do, but I didn't know where. We came back. I started going to Life Church, and, and I took a class that was offered here. It was a missional leadership class, and it actually brought in teachers from all over the place, as far away as England. And this guy would show up to Bluffton, which was a little strange because he's a big deal in England. He's been all over the world. He's an author of multiple books. He studied and led the church in all kinds of capacities all around the world. And then he was in Bluffton, which is a little odd. But he was here in room 210. He would come here and teach us. He was also crazy about Levi's, which was weird. You know, like, he would buy like stacks of Levi's when he would come. You can't get these over there. Like, (laughs) all right, man, whatever. Knock yourself out. Anyway, so he's a little weird. That's okay, right? He's genius, but he's a little weird, which is okay. And he said, this is what he said. He'd been all around the world. He's like, if you're an aspiring young minister of the gospel, stay home. The rest of the world is worried about the U.S. The gospel is exploding in places all over the world that you would never believe of. And they're all worried about you. They're actually sending missionaries here. Don't go there. Stay home. And that's the first time it clicked. Well, maybe I should stay here. Room 210 upstairs. Like, maybe I just won't. I'll just stay here. I thought maybe I was going to go somewhere, but guess not. So I was here, and I was leading mission trips and doing this and that, and lots of trips to Guatemala. And when we would get done with those trips, I would come up, and I would share just a little recap of the trip. And it was going pretty well. And I asked the leadership of the church, like, hey, is there something I, can I help in any way? And they said, well, yeah, you can. I mean, the recaps are going pretty good. Why don't you teach a Sunday? So I'll take one. My first, first message from this platform was in a series called Life at the Movies. And I gave a message uh, on hope. And the, the, I propped that message up with the movie The Shawshank Redemption. We just read about a young preacher who had lots of fervor and passion, but doctrine, eh. Okay. I resemble those some remarks. <laughs> You know what I should have said on that first message? I should have said, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And not one of us deserved it. But God is just that good. Believe it and receive it. And then sat down. (laughs) But I didn't. But that's okay. (laughs) We... We just, we just rambled on about hope and showed movie clips. But that's all right. We've we got to start somewhere, right? And we were started. And one Sunday after the next, with confirmation of other believers in the room, and for the first time, that restlessness inside my own spirit, it went quiet. And I just came to understand that feed my sheep meant all those years ago. Now, the whole thing took six years. But feed my sheep meant you need to be the pastor at Life Community Church. So in 2006, I quit my job. And I came, became a part-time teacher, preacher at Life. And when I started, there was one of the original planters of Life Church that was still here. His name is Kent. Some of you might know this guy. He is my father. He was one of the original planters of Life Church. He is a hard charger. 
He's like, plant a garden, let's plant a garden. Let's plant another one. We could plant 50. I'm like, could we just pull the weeds in this one? <laughs> I think we need to stay here and pull the weeds in this one. Well, you can do that if you want, but we're gonna, right? He's a hard charger. You know what he said to me? He said, this is what I did when I was here. Don't do that. This is what I did. You might try that. This is what I see you doing, and you may reconsider that. And the, the biggest thing he told me, though, over and over and over again, was this. Audience of one. Stop worrying about what they think of you, because you're going to answer to one God. What does he want? You figure that out, and the rest will take care of itself. And that is one of the hardest things to do when you're charged by God under him to deliver messages to people because from up here, we, whoever we are, we want you to like us. That's a very real dynamic. And we'll do almost anything to get you to like us. And he kept saying, stop worrying about what people think. Audience of one. Just rings in my head. He's still a hard charger. This may be the only time I've actually given him a check, just so you know. At least there's, you know, digital proof. <laughs> Most of the time, this check goes the other way. You need help. Uh, but he's taking that money. And here's the thing. It's your, I'm actually giving him your money. Sorry. <laughs> This was, from, uh, this was from Be Rich, and we'll talk more about Be Rich later, but you got, we, gave those, we gave funds above and beyond our tithe to help in places where they might need it. He's taking that check to Africa. In four days, he's getting on a plane, and that money's going to go to the, meet the needs of those students there. And so stay tuned on that. But, yeah, he's still a hard charger. And I'll tell you, boy, uh, it was... Nine o'clock was rough because he sat right back there. And I struggled, struggled, and struggled up here. So nine o'clock will not be on the podcast because <laughs> there was a lot of, <laughs> a lot of that. You, didn't, you should just be glad you weren't here because it was, it was uncomfortable for me too. Um, but I'll tell you, man, it's easier to sacrifice your life or your plan for something bigger that you think God has for you when you've already seen it modeled in your life. And all you have to do is look over, because he's still doing it, and like, all right, this, this is how you do it. I have been tremendously blessed. I just have. So, audience of one. And I decided, I just determined that I was going to do this to the best of my ability with God's help. And I wanted to forget everything that I knew about the church. And I wanted to figure out, God, what do you have a, what do you want us to be? What do you want us to do? And I threw out what I thought I knew. And I started to go to him and go to the word and look at people that I trusted. And my soul, this is what I, I fought so many battles I probably shouldn't have fought. But at the end of the day, I ended up fighting this one battle. How can I get all of us to resemble what I read in the Word? This is what the church is supposed to be. How can I get us? And so what I would try to do is capture it in my own heart and then cast it to you and then cast it to the staff so that they could push it out through their ministries, make sure that the building demonstrated the same things that I saw here, make sure the budget would support the same things that I saw, and I went at it. And for seven years, my spirit was real quiet. It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy for any one of us. It wasn't easy at all. But for seven years, I just went at it. And my spirit was real quiet. I was exactly where I was supposed to be. And then in 2014, that changed. I just knew something needed to change. Um, I said it this way in my notes, and it's not because um, I don't know what needed to change, but... I began to believe and know it would be best for the church if we divided the duties at the top. 
I was reading my Bible, and my Bible said, let the one who teaches teach with, according to the grace given, and let the one who leads lead according to the grace given, and let the one who administrates administrate according to the grace given. And all these different people were doing all these different things, but sometimes in the church, this is what we do. The guy that talks the most makes all the decisions. The guy that talks the most is automatically the boss of everything, which isn't always, it's not even what our own Bible says. And I knew that we needed to have some division at the top. And so I started to ask the trustees of our church, hey, would this even be possible? This was in 2014. I, st- I went to the elders. We're an elder-led church. Would this be possible? What would it look like if we did this? And it wasn't always pleasant. Sometimes I just, Bleh, this is what's going on in my heart. Um, but we started, it began. Who could come on and help? And there was a guy that used to... S- um, still does, not so much anymore, but he would always sit over here. He was one of those guys where if someone was taking off from Antioch and you asked everybody, all right, we need somebody to go with us. Who would all of you guys recommend? This is one of those guys that you would have probably all settled on like, that guy, he's, he's a Jesus guy. He's a good guy. His name is Steve. He worked for Youth for Christ at the time. And so he was in a, he was in a ministry that came alongside the church and he was about spreading the gospel through our little town, and I was trying to do that here, and I like Steve a lot. Um, We were big supporters of Youth for Christ, so we had lots to talk about, and we were just together all the time. But he was was just a well-known Jesus guy, minister of the gospel for 10 years in our town. Wherever you asked about him or his name came up, it was never anything bad. I had actually asked to hire him lots of times just over the years as vacancies would come up. I'd go to him. He's just good people. And I always wanted to surround myself with good people. And I, every time I asked, he's like, no, I'm good where I'm at. Good where I'm at. So I did notice though something was changing in his ministry. And the one thing that was changing in his ministry had already changed in mine. And it was this one thing, confidence in the word to change people. Incredibly, incredibly important for a minister to have confidence in the word to change and not confidence in yourself. Because it's a, it's a strange thing to be here under God to deliver messages because you want to see results so bad and you're willing to do almost anything from this platform to get you to respond in some way that would make me feel good. And eventually over time, God will let you know in this position, it's not you, it's me. Just say what I said, I'll take care of the rest. And when that finally sinks into your heart, it is the most freeing thing in the world because you know what happens? I'm not afraid of you anymore. (laughs) Doesn't matter if you don't like me. You can love me. But all I'm going to say is this is what he said, and then he'll take care of the rest. It is liberating. I love it. It's the best thing that's ever happened to me up here. God finally said, stop trying so hard to produce change. It'll never last anyway. But the same thing was happening with him. I could see it in his ministry, and I could see, I saw it. He would send me uh, monthly letters about what was going up, going on in his ministry, and I could see in his letters like this falling away of Steve and this raising up of the word. His letters were so good, I actually started ripping off some of his material in those letters and using them up here for my messages. True story. I'm like, I don't know where you got that, but that is really good, and that resonates with my heart, and I'm going to say that. And then something happened that had never happened before. I had always gone to him, but one day he showed up in my driveway and, and he said, hey, I don't know if this is me or God, but I think I should preach. I said, well, we'll see if it's you or God. And I asked the elders if he could have a Sunday and they said yes. So August of 2014, he preached his first message from this platform. And I sat right up there in the crow's nest. It was going to be a great day for me. I had a blueberry donut and coffee. Ah, day off. I wasn't even really planning on coming down talking to any of you. I was just going to be up there. And I watched from up there. I think what a lot of you saw, God just took over. He talked to us like he had been our pastor for years. Like I couldn't believe some of the stuff he was saying. Like, wow, I wonder if they're going to take that. And you did. Like it was okay with you. I I told him after, I was like, how did you take so much ownership of them? You can't just walk up there and do that. And he didn't even really know what he did. One of the elders that day went home and told his wife, I think we just saw the next lead pastor of Life Community Church. And I was up there thinking exactly the same thing. 
And so over the next year, God began to take those beginnings and make them reality. The following spring, he was nominated and affirmed as an elder by all of you. A year after his first message, August of 2015, he came on staff here as spiritual formation pastor. And in January of 2017, he will become the next lead pastor of Life Community Church. Thank you. So some of you are visiting today and you're like, is this what happens every week? Nope, it's not. So just come back next week. It'll be okay. Now, I'm not going anywhere. The call on my life is to feed his sheep. And I don't believe that... I don't believe that that call goes away. Oswald Chambers says this in my utmost for his highest, the co-mission of God that he places on our life, God never releases us from that. So I believe that I will be charged with feeding his sheep for the rest of my days, however many days I have, and I love to do it, and I'm still gonna do it from this very same platform. I'm just gonna do it, yeah. I'm just going to do it from a different seat. It is okay. Whose church is it? <laughs> who has always determined the who, the when, the where, the why, and the how. And he's just doing it again. Um, I had a lady come up Saturday night, and she put her hand, she was crying because, you know, there's some sense of loss or something that you're going to lose part of me. And she grabbed my hand, she was crying, and she said, when your dad left, we hated you. <laughs> and then she never finished the sentence. Like, I was kind of waiting for her to go like, but now? <laughs> but she didn't. She just, <laughs> hey, you know, but audience of one, right? So it's all right. So. Craig's going to take the money. Craig's going to be executive pastor and has been. And I'm going to take the Sunday pressure off because there's pressure there. But make no doubt about it, God's guy for the next season at life to lead this thing is Steve Serbo. So just I would would be remiss to not just like say something about Chad because uh, he constantly encouraged me and uh, humbly just gave me wisdom. And so it's been a year process from August 2014 of me trying to say no. Like, God, I love what I'm doing here. And uh, the thing about God that many of you have learned is that he just, he doesn't, he doesn't stop. He just moves and he will push you to do his will. And um, I had to say yes. And scared, but excited. Um, but this gentleman, um, for the last six months, we've kind of known that God has been pushing us towards this decision today. And I watched him take a back seat and elevate me so you could get to know my heart and who I was, and unfortunately he got criticized in some ways for taking that back seat. But he just took it, and he steered the church for the betterment of us and the better of, of me, and I will always be indebted to the day that I die for his willingness to suffer for a little while to make this transition go well, because we don't want cliffs in church. We don't want cliffs in transition. We want ramps, and he has worked hard. And so I'll always be grateful for that. Honestly, I, I'm not 100% sure why me. Why me? Um, I just know that it is. And I can look at my own thoughts and think, all right, God, why me? But I just, I have never felt more sure that I'm where I'm supposed to be than I am right now. And so I trust, and I'm going to lean in that. And he is pouring within me a vision and a culture that for this church that I don't fully have yet. But we are surrounded by incredible people. We have great elders, we have great teachers, and we are going to pray 
and talk and disagree, but we are going to figure out what God is doing because it is him that moves us. What is he doing in this transition and what does he want to accomplish besides us changing seats? And so we're going to ask you just to be really diligent and pray. Pray for me, pray for Chad, and pray for our elders. And don't, just not a token, I'll pray for you. Like the church is the greatest thing that the world has. We have to do this right. We have to get this right. And we need your prayers. We need your support. And uh, gosh, we just need you. So will you please pray for us? Uh, we are tremendously excited. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm probably not where Chad is. Where I probably still have a little fear of what you may think of me. But that's kind of going away. So, hey, I'm excited. And uh, I'll, I'll get back to Chad. So here's the picture I want you to see going forward. Craig's executive pastor is going to take the budget and has already been doing that and doing a great job. I am going to feed sheep right over here. I'm going to keep teaching and preaching from the front. But this guy is going to lead us. I'm just going to do it. And I think this is what, what I wanted. There's no way I could have said it this way in 2014, but this is what I really wanted to happen. I knew some kind of division had to happen, and this is it. This is what God has brought forward. Now, I'll just say this one last thing and then we'll wrap. When you choose to follow God in this way, the way he's saying yes to, God always says, Christ says, make sure you count the cost. It's going to cost him to be up here. And he's going to pay the price. His wife's going to pay the price. His kids are going to pay the kid. You know, you're not, well, I don't know, maybe. Who knows? who knows? I could be a prophet. I think I was just a prophet. I don't know. Anyway, listen, it takes a toll. So if you can hear my voice, do this. Don't be the one who adds to the price he's going to pay. Don't add to the cost. If there's something about this that is deeply unsettling to you and you can't say anything good about it for now, just don't say anything. Just sit on it and consider this. If God has blessed it, if God is blessing it, should you? Why shouldn't you? Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word, and thanks for always calling the shots, and thanks for calling the shots here, and I just pray that you would bless us in a big, big way over this next season, and I ask it in the good and great name of Jesus. And everybody said...